If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and pull those out, however you access those. We'll be in James today, the third chapter. And uh, if you're not familiar with looking up Scripture, it should be on the screen uh, behind us when, uh, when we're ready to, to look at it. But uh, just to give you a framework and a reminder, we have been, over these last five weeks, kind of building this framework for understanding peace in our life. And we've kind of used Psalms 34, 14 as the core verse to do this with. And it says this, turn away from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. And so it's been this idea that we are wanting to allow peace not just to come into our life, but to really anchor us into this life, because the concept of pursuing peace for many of us, when we think about this, again, even maybe after this series, as we've gone through this, our first inclination, our first mindset is like, ah, I got to do something to make peace with God. I got to do something to make things right with God after this week. Like it has just been a bad week and I got to do something to make peace with God. And that is not at all what we've been talking about. Instead, it's understanding and pursuing this idea that the peace of God is fully available to us, that the ways of God are always right, always just, and always lead us to peace. It's coming to peace with the idea that there is a good and gracious God, and he wants good and gracious things for you and me. It's not this journey of fighting an uphill battle to get to God. It is instead resting in the truths that God has already won the battle for us. And over the last few weeks, we've been nailing down these anchor points in our life that we can really attach our lives to and hold on to no matter what circumstance may come. And way back, we talked about self-control and learning to submit our lives to the will of God, learning to trust him no matter what. We talked about embracing honesty hooking our life to being honest and letting truth defend us instead of having to defend our version of the truth. A couple weeks ago, we talked about hooking into forgiveness as an anchor and being willing to grow this tree of forgiveness in our life instead of constantly allowing trees of condemnation to grow in our life where we're constantly condemning ourselves and others and cutting off the flow of forgiveness. And then last week, we talked about sacrifice and how we have to be able for us to experience peace and experience the deeper and fuller things of God. It comes when we let go of the things he's already given us. We sacrifice and give up things so that we can grab hold of more. And those are four amazing anchors. And those anchors for our soul, these are things that hold us in place no matter what wind or wave comes. No matter what obstacle we face, they hold us in place. It reminds me of the first time I went rappelling. I don't know if you've ever been, went rappelling, like off of a cliff. Like you are anchored in. You, you're like hooked in and they go through all of this stuff with you of like, you, you're, you're, you will be fine. They tell you this in your mind. Like, you know, you're fine. You're hooked in. Nothing bad can happen. Step off the side of the cliff. And I'm like, uh, you know, I, I trust you guys. Well, I don't know that I even trust you because it's like the first time I met you. So like you're telling me all this stuff. And maybe you were like me that first time that I went repelling when I'm telling you these are anchors for trust. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's good and all, but I'm just not sure. And it really takes taking that first step off the cliff. I remember that feeling like I sitting there, I'm holding onto this rope and they tell you to, to just lean back. It goes against every ounce of thought in your body, every instinct to just lean back and fall into it. But I remember the first time I did it, I was like, 
soon as I fell and I felt that rope hold, my confidence shot up. Like I got my feet back under me and I slowly worked myself down that cliff. And that day, I remember that day, like we we were rappelling over and over. By the end of that day, man, I was like getting that rope and I was like jump off, you know, and plant my feet. I was like doing this with confidence because I knew the anchor point would hold. And for many of us, we look at these anchor points and we're like, I'm not sure that I trust them yet. And I want to challenge you, test them, put them to the test. Be honest, sacrifice, forgive, Submit your control of yourself to God and see if they'll hold, and they will. And then you'll have the confidence and the faith to jump off almost any cliff that comes your way. And today we're getting to what I think is the center point, the key core anchor point in our life. This thing that even if for some reason we cut the ropes attaching us to all the other things, this anchor point will keep us tethered to the unshakable hope we have in Jesus. It is a cord so powerful that even in our darkest days, in our deepest trials, in our moments of regret and searing pain, it will not break. It will not let us go if we'll hook our lives to it. Growing up, my dad and our family and all, we used to go to Panama City Beach in Florida for, like, summer. We would just go, spend a week down there, and one of the favorite things that we would do would be to go out. We'd buy these rafts that you would sit on that had the cord around the edge, and, like, me and my brother and my dad would go out and, like, ride the waves. And I've, since I've been back to Panama City, like, the waves are, like, you know, a foot high. But I guess as an eight-year-old, they felt really big. And I remember we would go out, and my dad would get in the center of us, and, like, we would hold on to the strings on his raft as we would ride these waves. And, man, they would start to get bigger and bigger, and we just feel them coming. And I remember at times I feel like if I let go of this, I'm going to die. Like, I'm just, I'm going to be overwhelmed. And I remember sometimes a wave would get so heavy that my hand would come loose. And I was reminded every time that my hand came loose, there was something that didn't. And it was my dad's grip on our rafts. As much as we were trying to hold on to him, he held on to us. He was not letting us go. And this is the one, this core anchor piece that we're going to talk about today. Because I really believe that one, that if we can get a hold of it, we realize that God will never let us go. No matter what storm and no matter what trial comes. And that anchor point that we're going to look at today is learning to be content in the mercy of God. Is that God in his great mercy has provided everything that you need. Everything. The anchor point of learning to be content in God's mercy. And when we hear this word content, for some of us, we immediately fight against it. I'm not going to point out anybody but Jamal and I have already had this conversation this week, but we, we fight against it. We, we think, you know, I've worked my whole life not to be content, to strive for more, to accomplish more, to do more, to be more, to be recognized for more. And we think that the opponent of success is contentment, that contentment breeds comfort and it breeds laziness and eventually breeds apathy and failure. And so when we hear contentment, we're like, I don't want that. For some of us, when we hear the word contentment, it is what we've been chasing our whole lives. It's what we're working for. We're trying to get to a point 
of rest. We're putting in extra hours at work. We're putting in extra effort. We're sacrificing time with family and friends and cutting out guilty pleasures in our lives so that one day I can reach a point of contentment, ease, and rest. Maybe we think of it as like retirement, like one day I'll be done and I can be content. I'll get enough and I'll be content. For other of us, we hear the idea of contentment and we see it as like fool's gold. It's something that, you know, we can never be obtained. Something that, you know, seems like that everybody's on the search for, but nobody can find. It's a wild goose chase and our only hope is to find contentment in some momentary pleasure. And while that may give us peace in the moment, we know that it will soon fade away and that emptiness will return, maybe even bigger than before. We think contentment's a, a fairy tale, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And we spend our lives moving from empty pleasure to empty pleasure just to keep the happiness in our lives to make it through the next day and the next and the next. But I want you to hear this morning, contentment is not about what you've accomplished. Contentment is not what you can store up. Contentment is not what pleasure you can experience. Contentment starts in the depths of our souls. It begins with understanding who we are, and it begins with understanding and uncovering our true identity, taking off whatever masks that we have put on and being comfortable in the mercy of God and being content in the mercy of God that we are enough for God. You are are enough. I used to love Halloween growing up, and I would love to go get masks and those, I don't know what they make those masks, like that plastic that as soon as you put them on, like your face and your head just begins to sweat profusely, like, and you're, you're wearing this mask, you're going around scaring people or being whatever you want to be, and like, I just remember one time, it went too long ago when the kids were a little younger, and I was going around them, I had this I think the label on the mask was Old Scary Man. I think that's what it was, and it was just this horrible mask. But by the end of the night, like, I take this on, and my head is just dripping with sweat. I couldn't breathe through it. And sometimes we feel like we go through life like that, don't we? That we're just wearing this thing that's not comfortable. It's constraining this mask that we wear. And the invitation of contentment this morning is to take off that mask and breathe in and just be who you are. Just take who you are. And that's what I want us to, to really focus in this morning. There's a passage in Hebrews that I want us to look at first before we get to James, and it'll be on the screen. that helps us understand this a little bit better, and it's Hebrews 6, 17 and 19, and it says this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath that then we would have this as a pure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. These two verses lay the groundwork for understanding what biblical contentment is. It is understanding that God, through his unchanging character, through his unchanging character, is working to convince us that his love, his truths, his mercy, and his works will be an anchor for our soul and provide us peace and hope. Not the work of our efforts, our own hearts, of our hands, but it is the work of God. So here's what contentment is. Contentment is learning to live life not based on what we can accomplish, but instead on what God has already accomplished in us, for us, and through us. It's not about the work of our hands. Contentment isn't laziness, though. 
but it's resting in the truth that I am living my life not trying to impress God. I don't work for God. I'm not in competition with others to please God. Contentment isn't trying to secure a certain future, but it is certainty in knowing that in any future, I am secure, that not even death can separate me from the love of Christ. Contentment also isn't about momentary pleasure, but it is finding pleasure in the fact that God is providing for us and his presence is with us every moment of every day. And this verse that says that God seals these ideas, he guarantees these ideas, these truths with an oath. And it's not an oath based on what we agree to. It's an oath based on his character and his demonstrated compassion and grace. And as we journey toward this understanding of commitment today, I want you to hear some of the oaths that God has made to you, some of the truths that we can hold on to about you and how he views you. And these are oaths that are repeated throughout Scripture. These are oaths that have been demonstrated throughout history by how God has interacted with man. And the first oath I want you to hear is this, is that God accepts you and loves you. That's an oath that God's made to you. He accepts you and he loves you. It's not just to love us and accept us, but to, but it's the idea that he loves you unconditionally, not based on anything that you have done. We are his handiwork. We are created by him for good works. There's nothing you need to change about yourself to make him love you or accept you more. He formed you. He shaped you. And even when we rebel and bring damage to our own souls or twist our hearts up, his love and deep acceptance never shifts. It never goes away. It is there everywhere always. We don't have to woo God to love us. I remember when Katie and I first started dating. Like, I, I wanted to impress her. Like, I wanted her to, to love me, so I would do nice things for her. I'd buy gifts. I would try to surprise her. I'd, you know, show up with flowers or this. I remember our first Christmas, we began dating in October. And so, like, Christmas was, like, the first big thing that we had. And I'm like, I got to get something good. You know, I got to get something. So, I, like, I knew she liked I talked to her mom and dad, like there was a gold bracelet she wanted. So like I bought this little teddy bear and like put the bracelet around its neck. Like it was a necklace, showed up to her house, had it all wrapped. It made, she was so excited. I was like, I did good. I did good. It wasn't long, like a few years then later, we, had, we were married. It was, I think it was Mother's Day. I can't remember. She would know for sure. It was either Mother's Day or Valentine's Day. I bought her a lawnmower. Like I was like, because she was like, we need to take care of the yard more. I was like, all right, I'm going to buy a lawnmower to like show her this is my commitment to her to, to work in the yard. Worst gift ever, right? I mean, she's like, what? She was like, why would you buy me a lawnmower? And I was like, I tried to explain it. it sa- as soon as I verbalized it, it sounds horrible. But I felt like, oh, my gosh, I messed up that one. I got to do good the next time. And we, I felt like, you know, when you're, especially when you're first dating or connecting with somebody, you felt like you have to earn their love. You don't have to do anything to woo God to love you. He loves you. It's there, 100%. There's no more. It's not hidden from you. He doesn't have a reserve of love that if you do just right, he'll give it to you. It's all there. That's his oath to you. His second oath is this, that he will protect you and prosper you. So he will love us and accept us, but he will also work for us. 
God doesn't leave you to fend for yourself. He is working on our behalf. He's going before us. God isn't waiting for you to do your part so that then he will do his part. God has done all the parts. And uh, we're simply waiting on us to step into the work that he has already accomplished. God isn't waiting on in the sky, waiting for you to mess up, to drop a lightning bolt of judgment down on you. And many of us maybe think of God in that way of like, I just don't want to mess up. I don't want to do something so that God will remove his protection from me or won't make things work for me. I want you to understand God isn't up there waiting to drop a lightning bolt on, on you, but he is up there moving mountains for you on your behalf. He's clearing the path before you. He is providing protection and prosperity for you. It says that God's ways are higher than our ways. And one of the great ways to look at that, it means that he knows what's coming and he's leveling the landscape for us so that if we follow his path, we'll have protection and provision as we go. It's an oath. It's an oath. God will provide and protect. The last oath I want you to see from God this morning is this, is that he will not forsake you or forget you. God will not forsake you or forget you. God has promised to never leave you or forsake you. There is no pathway so far away from God that he is not able to find you. You cannot journey so far that you are hidden from God. As a matter of fact, when you get to the end of that dark, lonely path, what you will find there is that God is already there. It's not that he has to come find you. He has been journeying with you. There is no sin, no rebellion too large that God's grace cannot overcome. God will never turn his back on you, even when we turn our back on him and run from him. He will not forget you. He will not forsake you. God is not bound by time, so he knows you so well from the day you were born to the day you are today. He knows you intimately. He will never forget you or one thing about you. And it's not that he just that he can't, it's that he doesn't want to. God wants to know you intimately, everything about you completely known by God. And this is where we see the fulfillment and the fullness of these oaths. That even in the darkest things that he sees in me, even in these hidden dark places, he still loves me and accepts me. He still wants to protect me and provide for me, and he will never forsake and forget me. He will love you, accept you, protect you, and prosper you, not because of the things you do for him or the accomplishments of your life or because you have sacrificed for him. These oaths are true not because of what, who you are, but because of who God is. And I want you to hear this. None of us are competing for the love of God. None of us are in a race with each other to see which one of us can get into God's good graces more. We're not competing with each other. We're not competing for his acceptance or protection. We're experiencing it together. Together. And these oaths are amazing truths. Amazing things that when we hold on to can begin the process of hooking our life to contentment of God's mercy. But as great as these truths are, for us to experience the power of these truths, we have to be willing to do what the last part of Hebrews said here, where it says this, it is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, and Hebrews often pushes back to the Old Testament and the way that 
the uh, tabernacle work that when people would go into the presence of God, they would have to go behind these, this inner curtain in the tabernacle. Where only one person one day a year was allowed to go in and is where the presence of God dwelt. And that's that same curtain that on the day that Jesus was crucified and died that was torn in two. And it was open and it was symbolic and, and literal of this idea that God's presence is now available to you. It's coming to you. You don't have to go to him. But the idea is this. Sometimes we put a curtain up in our own life. And we hold people back. We hold God back. And for these truths to, to get in and really make an impact in our heart, they have to get behind the inner curtain of our heart. Behind the facade that everyone else sees. We let not God just see into the, the deep end of who we are, but into the depths of our lives. The deepest part. Let him venture where nobody else has ventured. Those hidden parts that aren't just hidden behind a curtain, but they're behind three curtains, two locked doors, and hidden in a chest in the very back corner of our life where we've never let anybody else. Because until we allow God into the deepest, darkest recesses of our lives and know that even in that moment, he accepts us, loves us, protects us, and wants to prosper us. And that he will not forsake us or forget us. Even when that part is uncovered, we will never think that we're enough for God. We will always think that we're lacking. We'll always think there's a part of us that's unlovable, that's unacceptable, that if God really knew, he would forsake us. And that's why we can't be content. It's because we think there's something about us that's broken and unfixable. And I'll be the first to admit I'm broken. You're broken, but you're not unfixable. And the beginning of fixing our lives, mending our souls, comes in finding contentment in the mercy of God. And that brings us to ask ourselves a very important question, but a tough question today. And it's this. If you're honest with yourself, do I, do I think that I need to be more than who I already am? When I look into my soul, do I think that I need to be more than who I already am? Am I not satisfied with who and how I was created? Do I feel lacking and this need to add value to myself in some way to make myself acceptable to God and to others? You know what, this doesn't mean that we can't grow better, we can't get better at our jobs, we can't get better physically, we can't grow better mentally and spiritually. It's not, this is not saying that we can't grow. We can all grow. But this is us in our mind thinking that there is something fundamentally flawed in me that cannot be accepted if God really knew it or others really knew it. I'm junk. And as long as we have that floating around in our mind, we'll never be content. Uncertainty in these types of questions will eat away at our contentment. And I think many of us have never indulged ourselves to really think about these depths of our lives. And when we lose our contentment, we start to try to fill our life with other things. We start to add on. We fill it with jealousy of others. We fill it with this self-serving ambition that elevates me and puts everybody else aside. We look in the mirror and we just see... A quick fix. We want to 
put the put the comb the hair if we had hair and put the makeup on or we just want to make ourselves presentable right quick without dealing with the the wrinkles and the blemishes and looking and saying that's not who I am I am I am the one that's made up and realizing that you are loved blemishes and all instead and this is where the passage of James finds us today is in this moment of saying when you will allow God and the truths and the oaths of God to enter into your heart, you're going to have to come to one of two decisions. That God loves you as you are, or that you've got to add on something. You've got to add something on. And these are the thoughts that James fights against, that we have to add on something. So look at James three fourteen through 16. It says this. It says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. Do not be false to the truth. He's saying you are trying to create a picture and image that is not there. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. These two words that he uses here, bitter jealousy, these two terms, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, when we put those together, I think there's a word that comes to my mind and it may not, you may think of it in another way, but it's this word of indulgence. Indulgence. Is that we think that we have to indulge something in our life, add to something in our life to make us presentable. And we do this in a couple of ways. We start to desire and demand more than I need. Instead of understanding and realizing that how God has created me, how God has shaped me is enough. I don't need the cherry on top. I don't need the fancy dressing. I am enough. I'm enough. But when we start thinking this way, it starts to show up in these two ways, which is bitter jealousy. First, bitter jealousy is when I always want others to lose. When I choose to to want others to lose so that I may stand, be viewed higher. Jealousy isn't about making sure that no one else, it's about making sure that no one else has more success than me. It shows up in relationships, it shows up in interactions at work, it shows up in financial decisions that we make, it shows up in every way that I need to be at the top of the food chain. I need to win and others need to lose. And we use certain tools to express our jealousy. And I, I'm just sharing these from, from my life where I have done this before. When I don't feel content in my soul and so I want to push others down to make myself look better, here's what I do. I start to sabotage people, right? We start to bring damage with our words and our actions into other people's life. We attack their reputation. We work so that others will think less of them. We actively are working against the success of others. We start to sabotage we just start to weaken their defenses. And then I, I use a term where I call, like I, I create some subversion in life. I take away their foundation. These are like sneak attacks in relationship that cause people to begin to doubt themselves, to begin to eat away at their identity. We, we already all talk about we struggle with contentment and accepting who we are. And instead of helping that, I start to f- add fuel to that fire in their life. I start to make them doubt themselves and and maybe even encourage the thought that, yeah, you you do need to do something else for God. And I start to sabotage their identity. We elevate the bad and diminish the good in their life, and we plant toxic, toxic thoughts in their head. And then, and then I 
do this. I, I ambush people. Once I've weakened their defenses and broken them down on the inside, I'll start to set traps. Traps for them, to, then their poison view of themselves are going to be weakened and fall into. And that they, these attacks come and take away their future and their hope. And I've diminished them. And in diminishing them and sabotaging and subverting and then ambushing them, I'm the last one standing. Right? I look better. I feel better about myself. Certainly God feels better about me because look at these other people. And I want to tell you something. In the end, jealousy doesn't deal with my perceived shortcomings. It just works to make everyone else look worse than me. It doesn't better myself. It actually does worse for me. But it's just me shoving everybody else down. Bitter jealousy. Are you jealous? Is jealousy ruling your life in such a way because you think maybe somebody else is more acceptable to God, is getting more blessing from God than you, and we start doing this? God's saying, stop. This is earthly wisdom. This is not wisdom from above. Stop. But then he says the second thing is this. It's selfish ambition. And I'm thankful that he qualifies it with the word selfish because ambition in itself is not a bad thing. Being ambitious in itself is not. But selfish ambition is. This is being dry. If being driven by jealousy isn't bad enough, when we talk about this passage now, it's, we add selfish ambition to it. This isn't just wanting others to lose, but it is willing to do anything to make sure that I win. I cross the line first. Again, this impacts every area of our life. It turns life into a competition instead of cooperation. Where you know selfish ambition shows up in your life is when everything in your life is a win-lose situation. It's about me winning and you losing. Whether that's in a relationship, at work, or just in a friendship. When selfish ambition shows up, I have to win. Maybe you can finish, but I'm winning. And this shows up in our life as well. We, here's what we do. We start to cheat, right? We'll do whatever it takes to make things easier for us and harder for others. We exaggerate others and diminish others. We exaggerate ourselves and diminish others. We always justify our behavior in our mind, and we always find reasons not to justify behavior of others in our mind. We start to cheat, and then we start to manipulate. And what manipulating is is we change the rules mid-game, right? You're in the middle of a game. You have this, these relationship expectations, and all of a sudden you don't like where that is, or you're starting to feel jealous, or you, just, you don't feel like you're getting enough attention. So you change the rules. Here's what it means to love me now. Here's what it means for me to feel accepted by you. And you, you change the rules, but you don't even tell anybody. You just start expecting everyone to operate in this path. And if they don't, then what we start to do is we start to assassinate them. Hopefully not literally, but figuratively, we start to cut people out of our lives. If you can't fit, if you don't fit my rules, work in my game so that I'm the winner, I don't want you in my life. And we cut them out. And in the end, selfish ambition doesn't deal with my perceived shortcomings. It just makes me the lone survivor and the only one left to choose. And we think if I can just get rid of the rest of the competition, God has to love me. I'm the last one here. Right? And so I want to end with a question this morning. And it's this idea that have you ever let God 
behind the curtain of your heart? Have you ever let him step in to the curtain of your soul and know you enough so that he can prove to you that you are enough, that he loves you and accepts you unconditionally. You don't have to woo him. You don't have to prove yourself to him. You don't have to make everybody else look bad so that you look better. You don't have to get rid of everybody else so that you're his only choice. He loves you and accepts you, period. Will you let him in and and receive that? Will you understand that he wants to prosper you and protect you? That in the very core of your soul, he wants to start in that weakest part, that darkest part of who you think you are, and say, I'm here even for this. Wherever you feel lacking, I am there. And would you know that he will never forsake you or forget you? No matter how you respond to him, no matter how you rebel against him, if you allow God to come into the curtain of your life, behind the curtain, into your innermost heart, you can find contentment. And I want to tell you the way that I've tried to remember this in my life, the key principle that I live by, and it's this. I try to live a life where I always value people over possessions. Even me. Even myself. There's nothing in this world that is more valuable than someone. And that's where we get messed up. As we start thinking this life is about the things of this world, the accumulation, the competition, making myself out better than this person or that person so that this world, these people in this world, and the God who created me will have a reason to love me. God doesn't need a reason to love you. He loves you because he created you, formed you, and shaped you. You will never lose that love. Be content in that. Let's pray together.